Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, it's the Ruler Podcast. It's September and Cross is coming. Well, actually, it's already come. The first round of the UCI World Cup was yesterday, the Jingle Cross in Iowa. Paul Maunder has written an excellent book about cyclocross, Rainbows in the Mud, and he's also written a piece in Ruler 17.7 about Tom Pidcock, the young British rider who's been winning races in the mud, on the track and on the road with remarkable ease. Hello, Paul. Hello. Uh, we'll be discussing Tom Pickcock and cyclocross in a little while. Uh, Ruler executive editor Ian Cleverly is here as well, just back from a trip to Canada. What was that about? Or a boot, as they say in Canada. I didn't hear anybody say a boot, mm. but uh, maybe I was, wasn't... Maybe it's a myth. Trying to, um, I went over for the two um, uh, races, which are Grand Prix Quebec and uh, Montreal. Um, Good fun, good fun, good races. Um, well, actually, I say good races. First one was a bit dull, to be honest. Um, but um, yeah, good trip overall. I've never been to Canada before, so. What are the events like? Well, these two are absolutely top notch. I mean, and that's kind of really their selling point. They they, they attract a, a, a top class field by not only transporting everybody over in a, in a chartered plane but looking after them really well you 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 get the most amazing hotel in quebec which is quite phenomenal it's like a castle um and so hence you've got sagan and dumoulin and and greg van avermaet you know all the top boys go and uh, i think a big part of the attraction is because they're so well well looked after so it's a nice way to end the season exactly i mean if you, your options then are the Vuelta, which obviously you don't want to do if you just finished a Grand Tour, the Tour of Britain, hmm, a bit cold and wet, or the two races in Canada. And it's a long way to go for two races, but it does have its uh, attractions. OK, well, before we talk about anything else, the Giro d'Italia 2018 will begin in Israel. The organisers of the Giro, RCS, announced their decision in Jerusalem this week. It may yet prove controversial, not least with the two pro teams which are sponsored by Arab states. Ruler's Richard Abram caught up with the Giro organiser Mauro Venyi and asked through a translator what had influenced the decision. Was Israel simply the highest bidder? Candidature per il 2018 ce n'erano altre. For 2018 edition we had other proposals, but they were all European based. Uh, Israel wasn't, obviously, uh, and that was uh, the deal breaker, much more than the, the, the budget involved. Why? Because uh, 
Uh, in the last 15 years, the view of the Giro has been to growing internationally and having an international, uh, raised international profile. Um, and the chance to start outside of Europe was big, and the relevance of a start in an important area such as this one convinced the whole organization that that was a unique opportunity. And so the Giro has already started in Northern Ireland in 2014, um, and there's been talk of having a start in the US and Japan as well. Do you think that the Giro has to make a bit of a splash and to ruffle a few feathers maybe, particularly because of how dominant and how big the Tour de France is now that the Giro has to do something to stand out from the crowd? For once, being first before the Tour, I don't particularly dislike the position in which I am. He agrees with you, yes, there are probably some uh, uh, ruffled uh, plumage around, I'm sure about it. This is not to fight the power of two, but it's to show the, the world that there are other races and other partners that can be as big, as, as unique as the two of the France in the same space. So obviously the situation on a political level in Israel is very complex. Are you concerned? Do you think that there might be perhaps a negative response to what you're trying to do in, in bringing the race to Israel? Yes, of course I expect uh, some, uh, some negative response, but I think I want to make it clear that we are not here for political reasons at all. Um, and we didn't come here to give a political approval to Israel. We are here because um, of uh, uh, the unique opportunity um, that was uh, um, leading this race towards uh, and this sport uh, towards a real globalization. The fact is that there's always been a talk about globalization, but this is a real step in the direction of uh, taking an event and a sport like cycling in a country that shouldn't even be possible to think about a few years ago. So that was the reason. So there's nothing to do with politics. Were there to be a rider or perhaps a member of staff at RCS or a sponsor of RCS and the race who decided or felt uncomfortable taking part in this event for political or religious reasons, what would be the, the response from RCS in that instance? Well, if uh, a team obviously, like specifically on the riders, a team has got a roster and if one of the guys doesn't want to participate, the team usually has 27 riders, so there are plenty of other options. But uh, you need to consider that the Israeli Cycling Federation um, is member of the UCI, is member of the CIO, and they've got right to organize races, and so it would be very difficult to say at the level of sport policy, no, Israel not, because there are not the premises. Mm. I, I do a sport event, and we have no political connection in any shape or form. And it needs to be clarified that despite the name of the event is Giro d'Italia, this is not an event, is an event organized by a private organization and not by the Italian country. And so there is no political, uh, there is no political aspect and there is no political connection in between Italy and Israel. This is a private event named Giro d'Italia that is coming to do sport and not politics. In a, uh, in a territory. La comunità internazionale ha riconosciuto a Israele. But the Giro has been very careful to race in the uh, 
in the part of the land that is being recognized by the international community to Israel. Mauro Vegni of the Giro d'Italia. You're listening to the Ruler podcast with me, Ian Parkinson, Ian Cleverly, and Paul Maunder. Uh, Paul, let's um, start with cyclocross. What prompted you to write the book Rainbows in the Mud? Well, I, uh, I was very much enthusiastic about the sport when I was a, a young lad, when I was in my teens. And then I sort of fell away from it in my 20s and 30s and, and came back to it when I had young children uh, and had a lot of time to kill when the children were up very early in the morning and uh, watching their iPads. So I sort of gravitated back towards watching Belgian live uh, broadcasts of cross races. With the Belgian commentary? With the Belgian commentary, of course. You need the Belgian commentary, it adds the, the flavour. It's not the same if you get... I mean, it's great that it's on Eurosport with English commentary now, uh, when it is, um, but it's not the same as watching some shaky feed with a language you don't understand. Exactly, yeah. And you need the, um, this, the, the little nuances which they pick up on and the, uh, the ooh, yeah, 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 and uh, the strange noises some of the commentators can make. Yeah, it's the, it's the admonition. I can't remember the, the guy's name, the main guy on, 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 on Sporza, but it's, it's the ay, 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 and tusk, tusk, tusk. You yeah, know, yeah, when it goes yeah, wrong, yeah. that always comes out. Yeah, and ooh, shit, and that kind of, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's a universal language. I think we can all understand that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, um, yeah, got back into the sport, started watching it, went over to a few races, wanted to know more, but when I looked online and in bookshops, there weren't any, or very few books in English language about the sport. There was some books um, about how to do it, I had no intention of actually doing it at that time. So um, I thought, well, there's a gap in the market. I can research one and have some fun doing so. Was there anything that particularly surprised you about cyclocross when you when you started looking into the history and looking into the scene at the moment? I think uh, the, the, the common perception is that it's a, it's a very Belgian thing and that's the heartland and... And it's always been so, but actually that's not really the case. It's um, the, the heartland has moved. It, it originated in France, and actually for a while Switzerland was really the centre of the, the cross scene. It's only really since the early to mid eighties that the Belgians have uh, been prevalent. Um, I think on a more sort of emotional level, it, I was quite um, taken with how much of a community it is. Although it's a very professional sport and quite hard-nosed in some ways, it's very family-oriented, and, and you can think that about Belgian culture generally, uh, without wishing to stereotype. But um, at the races, all the race, all the racers will have their own crew, but usually it'll be their uncle, their auntie, their mum, their dad, their brothers, people from their village. It's it's not the same kind of. Um, hard-nosed commercial setup that road cycling is well that was one of the things that surprised me reading the book first of all that um you know switzerland was so dominant for so long in the sport but also that even at quite a high level some of the riders are effectively part-time and a lot of the crews the mechanics the soigneurs the drivers they're all they're largely unpaid yes and um i think most of them will, would do it for the, for the love of the love of the sport, but also the love of their family members and to support their family members. There's many, I met many uh, middle-aged Belgian aunties who had been coming to races every weekend in the camper van for 25 years and seeing their friends there, having a glass of schnapps, sharing around some biscuits. And it seemed like it was a uh, kind of a social scene of 
all of his own. And there's that phenomenon of the supporters' clubs, which which is unlike you get. I think you get some of something a bit similar in Italy and some bits of France, but it's a very unique Flandrian sort of tradition. That isn't it? It is, and, it, and it's um, very geographically based. So they they're based around one rider and then one town or village. Uh, often and frequently one bar or one cafe yes yeah and they have coach trips to the big races they have parties at the end of the season um, and it's a sort of made to measure supporters club for the rider and they can make some noise out in the course and and, 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 and matching puffer jackets of course that is that's, important. that's very important yes otherwise you might just end up in the wrong crew by mistake yes and that would be a, a bad mistake to make Matching puffer jackets in, in, in shades of, of grey. Grey or dark blue with some yeah. white stitching on the back. Yeah. 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 And drinking seems to be quite an important part of it. I was quite surprised to find that beer is not so much a part as I thought. I, so I, I thought that it was all about the beer. Actually, most of the supporters' clubs, if they go week in, week out, they realise that it costs £2 for a pint or whatever it is. And that's quite, that's quickly stacks up if you go and add the bus trip and the ticket price to get in so they tend to smuggle in uh, bottles of um, schnapps or uh, gin or whiskey or whatever is their tipple works out cheaper do you think it's too belgian do you think that the sport is being held back by being a little parochial when the rest of cycling is internationalizing for good or ill certainly the uci would like to globalize which is uh and a word I'm ambivalent about, but they would like to uh, take it further afield. Uh, you could see a scenario where you start the season in, say, Australia, Japan, move to America, and then come to the European heartland in October, November. Um, it's uh, the the Belgian setup is very effective because it's um, a virtuous circle of sponsors, TV coverage, and crowds. Um, but it is very insular. And if one of those components starts to break down, then the Belgian scene is at risk. And actually, the, the season I was there, uh, two seasons ago, the attendance at races was coming down a bit and people were blaming the ticket prices or they could go and see some ice hockey or whatever it is. Um, but for the sport's future, it would be on a safer footing if it was a, a bit broader. But it's tricky, I guess, you know, for a sponsor like Telnet, who sponsored one of the biggest outfits, they're just not really interested in selling anything outside Belgium, really, are they? No, indeed. And, um, and that's why we need some more international sponsors to come in. And so far, that's been the likes of Trek and the, and the bike companies. Um, and there's a clear advantage for them because they want everyone to buy a cross bike in addition to their road bike and their mountain bike and their gravel bike. So, um, yeah, all power to that. Has anyone worked out the difference between a gravel bike and a cross bike? Because they look like cross bikes to me. The name. Ah, OK. That's, that's it, is it? That's yeah. it. Yeah. And you ride on gravel, not mud. Oh, yeah. The American scene is very different, isn't it? Yes, it's, um, it's much more participation-based. Uh, so in Belgium, the, the scene is based on elite racing, and then the people who go to watch the racing would probably never dream of getting on a bike. It's, it's entertainment, and it's professional entertainment. In America... Uh, they have many, many races from uh, eight-year-olds all the way up to um, 75-year-old veterans, plus single-speed races and kind of comedy races too. Um, and they have 
maybe up to 5,000, 6,000 competitors in the national championships. And they bring their families, everyone in the family races, and then goes and watches the events. Um, it's a different model, whether it's better or worse, I can't, can't say. Uh, I think we in Britain are tending more towards the American version at the moment. It's also to do with the phenomenal distances involved in the States. So, so the, the, the big races will be two races over an entire weekend, won't they? So you race on the Saturday and the Sunday because, you know, if you've got to fly several states away in just to do a race, it's a long way to go for 45 minutes or an hour of, yeah. of racing. Yeah. Uh, Belgium, you know, you can drive to any race, any time. Yeah. So it's a different... And, uh, and on the Sunday, on the, on the second day, they, they reverse the course. So you ride it in reverse, which adds a bit of a twist. Of course, the season starts you know, this year with uh, Jingle Cross in Iowa. Why is it called Jingle Cross if it's in September? It, good question. It used to be in December. And so there, there is... All the references are to the Grinch uh, series of books. And there's a Grinch alongside running around and causing a nuisance. But when they got elevated to World Cup status, the UCI put them in September... So there must have been some strange conversations around branding at that point and whether to keep the name or... And keep the Grinch. And yeah, yeah, I think they have, but he's a lesser figure in September. I mean, Christmas does start earlier every year, Ian. you just got to go with it. Just, yeah. just September, except it's now in September. <laughs> you see, I can't see the Belgian fans particularly taking to the Grinch running around the, uh, running around the course. No, no, and I didn't see much... Grinch activity in Belgium either. It's strange, isn't it, that the season begins in America and then the majority of the rest of the races are within... It's not even Belgium, it's actually quite a small part of Belgium. Yes, it's Flanders, um, with the exception of Namur. Um, even the Dutch races, Hugerheide does OK, but a lot of the Dutch races struggle to get the spectator numbers. So I, I think I would quite like the, the scene to broaden so that we've got Swiss... French, Dutch, Belgian, UK races, potentially. But um, it's the economic model. We need, need the fans and the TV coverage to, to land before you can make it happen. Well, you're involved in an attempt to bring a World Cup race to London, in fact. It was at uh, Milton Keynes a few years ago. How's that going? What stage has that reached? Pretty good. It started off as a bit of a joke between myself and Brooke Watts, who organises Cross Vegas. I was trying to get him to come and do Cross Vegas on Blackheath. Um, which he politely declined, which is fair enough. But um, after a while, I uh, just thought, let's see what we can get going. Um, so I'm working with a, a few people, including Simon Burney, who's well-known in, in the cross-world and mountain biking world, um, and various other people in the events world, to try to put together a uh, credible bid for a London World Cup. Um, all the reception from the UCI and British Cycling have been positive so far. Um, it would be a three-year contract, so it would be uh, 18, 19, 20. And if it works out, we could bid for a World Championships in London. Um, the Lee Valley Park, the Queen, uh, Queensborough Olympic Park, has got the space and actually the terrain as well for a really good cross course. Um, it's not cheap, though, so you need somewhere around... 400, 500 grand to do it. Um, and the challenge so far is bringing, attracting in sponsors where you have to explain Cross and explain the, the drama and intensity and, and the benefits of it for them. So you don't have 400, 500 grand in your no. back pocket? No, currently. no. Does Ruler have that? Uh, pass. 
we've got a lot of good conversations going on with sponsors, both inside and outside the bike industry. Um, I think a lot of people recognise that cross is the fastest growing part of UK cycle sport. And in London, it's really growing fast, really popular. Uh, it's great um, accessibility for children and families to have a go. Um, and there's potentially a, a good piece to link up with the broader London cycling strategy and how we encourage kids to just get on their bikes and feel more confident on their bikes. Because cross is a great way of getting kids started and also riding and learning how to handle their bikes really well in, in safety, isn't it? Yes, and, and you can they can race around a, a smaller, slightly easier track on grass, have fun doing so, and if they fall off, it's generally a pretty soft landing. So we're talking to uh, Transport for London and the London Mayor's Office about how we can perhaps create a uh, children's festival alongside the World Cup. So you've written about Tom Pidcock uh, in Ruler 17.7. He is, of course, junior cyclocross champion, but there's, there's a lot more to him than that, isn't there? He's, he's a remarkable talent. Absolutely. He, I, so I didn't know Tom before I went to interview him for the day. Uh, I saw him win the World Championships in Luxembourg and just the ease with, it, with which he rode around that horrifically icy and steep course. You got, you got the sense that he can do anything he wants on a bike. He's got the kind of natural bike handling skills of a, of a Mathieu van der Poel, uh, but at five years younger. But it was quite a surprise to me to learn that... Um, he doesn't really practice on his cross bike. He hardly ever rides it, in fact. It was hanging at the back of his shed somewhere. Um, he just rides his road bike. And he was saying that when he went out to meet his new team and met Sven Nice for the first time, he told them that and they were blown away and <laughs> a bit shocked, I think. Well, I, I, was, I was equally blown away when I read that line in, in the piece, yeah. you know, when he says, well, I don't really practice on my cross bike. And it was like, seriously? Yeah. How do you get that good with it, you know? I'm not quite, still not quite sure what the answer is to that question, but, but he certainly has been riding his bike since he was six or seven years old and has always rode to school on it. And there's just, you get the impression he's lived his young life on two wheels. And one of the issues for sort of young British cross riders is that actually British cycling at the moment doesn't really support cross that much, does it? It tends to go um, road or mountain bike because that's where the Olympic medals are potentially um, but Tom Pickock is presumably going to have to make up his mind at some point as to where he's going to focus his career. He was saying that he the plan is for the next couple of years to focus on uh, cross his contract with Telenet is I think for two years um, that will take him to 20 years of age um, and but he'll ride the road during the summer um, I got the sense that his heart probably lies on the road most of all, actually, and his ambitions do. Certainly he's not limiting himself in terms of ambition. He talked about Paris-Roubaix as his dream race, and he won the junior version, so absolutely why not? I think he could do anything he wanted to. Historical challenge has been that UK and British riders have been tempted by the money of the road scene, and who can blame them for that? How did he come across? Because he's, he's, what, 18 now, isn't he? How, how did he seem to be handling all these multiple titles and all this attention he certainly handles them very easily it comes quite naturally i think to him uh, i expected I, i'd seen his, his uh, rather flamboyant victory salutes and uh, just his riding style and expected him to be um equally kind of flamboyant and uh, maybe a bit leery in the way 18 year old lads can be but actually he was very uh 
quite serious, quite focused. Um, he listens. You can, you can kind of can tell that he really listens to what you're saying and absorbs and thinks it through. You can tell he's just very dedicated to his sport and committed to it. It'd be good to see him uh, racing cross in London, wouldn't it? That's part of my plan, yeah. If we could get him to win a work in the rainbow jersey in uh, London, that'd be pretty special. I have to say, photo shoot-wise, that's the best photo shoot we've ever done with a rider. He was just off the scale. And it's not like Benedict was asking him to do stuff. He was like, all right, there's a big rock over there. I'll just go and bunny hop on top of it and then bounce around for a bit and then get down. Some of the stuff he was doing was just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And But having um, had a coffee with his mum beforehand, I was... I was watching that feeling slightly nervous. <laughs> yes, I bet. Yes, Benedict was equally nervous. Well, I think one of my favourite shots of the whole piece is, uh, so, so Benedict says, Tom says, uh, do you want to come up and see my room? He says, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And they get out there. Do you want to see my Oakley collection? And he opens a drawer and he's got about like 20 pairs of Oakleys in there. And Benedict thinks, hmm, 17-year-old, what's going to work here? He says, I wonder how many of those Oakleys you could wear at one time. Before you know it, it's like his, his head is covered back to Challenge front accepting. in Oakley's. Yeah. Yes, great <laughs> shot. Okay, um, controversial issue now beards in uh, pro cycling, beards in cycling, full stop. Uh, Paul, you've got a very fine beard there. Thank you. And uh, I have a much less impressive one. Um, it's hard to think, though, of that many uh, bearded top pros, isn't it, really? You sort of, you know, we can exclude um, Bradley Wiggins' various experiments and. Peter Sargon, because Peter Sargon is, you know, Peter Sargon, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, other than that, there aren't that many, apart from uh, Simon Geschke, currently riding for Sunweb. And um, he's got a fine set of whiskers on him, and he's also brought out his own beard balm. And Ian, you went all the way to Canada just to speak to him about it. That's exactly <laughs> why I went all the way to Canada. Uh, uh, it was well worth it, well worth it. Yeah, it started uh, two years ago uh, with um, uh, Charlotte, she's from Belgium, she uh, is a big cycling fan, her husband has a beard, so uh, one day she, she produced a handmade beard balm for him because she, he didn't like uh, the products he bought so far and um, he really liked her product and then uh, yeah, they, they watched the Tour de France uh, and they saw me having a beard and decided, um, she decided to give me a sample at the Neko Tour a few months later. And um, yeah, and she, she also gave me her telephone number for feedback. She wanted to know if I like it or not. So I uh, contacted her a few few weeks later actually and asked her if she, uh, if she uh, would, yeah, if, if she would like to uh, sell it a little bit bigger. And um, that's when it started and she really liked the idea. To, uh, and that's how Geschke Beardbaum was born in the end, yeah. Being a bearded man yourself, are there any other riders in history in the peloton that you think, you know, that's a top beard? Is there, have you got a top yeah. five of bearded riders? I have to say, uh, the first time I saw a bearded cyclist uh, was Sean Eady, Australian. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, yeah. Trek, uh, former uh, Trek uh, sprint world champion. And my dad, uh, I watched it together with my dad because he was a he was he's also a former sprint world champion and um yeah and that's that's the first time i saw someone with a big big beard on a bike i thought oh fuck that that guy looks really cool so um but back then i was i don't know 10 years old so um, it was a long time before i could grow a proper beard 
And um, but that I remember that was the first beer I saw on the bunch or not in the bunch but on the bike. So um, I, I, that, that would be my all-time favorite actually. And um, top five is actually really hard. Um, there are many bearded cyclists, but uh, not really a famous one, I think. Do the guys in the in, in the peloton uh, uh, take the Mickey out of you? Do they like have a joke about your beard, or is it like uh, all the time? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's uh, but it's also the it's it's also I mean I know all the jokes now, so they keep repeating itself. Uh, whenever it rains, it's like oh uh, you must be nice and warm with your beard. So, no, it's not it's not working there. <laughs> it's, it's just jealousy, let's face it. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, I think they, so. you know, yeah, yeah, they, know yeah. they just can't oh, do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you about that, the heat thing. Mm. In, a, in a hot race, must get hotter. Um, yeah, when it's hot, it's hot, you know. I don't think the beer changes much. It's not that I really think, oh man, I really would like some, some air on my chin now. I just, um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's like hair, you don't feel it after a while. It's not, it's not much hotter. And are there any any disadvantages to having a beard? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the most annoying thing is actually when you spill a gel and you have a gel in the final and you, by accident, it, it runs down your the, the your mouth and you have it in your beard and there's no chance to get it out and uh, yeah you have to wait. <laughs> it, it has to stay there till till you have a shower on the bus. So that's that's definitely not not the nicest part. Have they done aerodynamic studies? They did, show. Yeah, 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 they did a uh, special, uh, I think, uh, one famous bike brand <laughs> in, <laughs> in the wind tunnel and uh, they tested it actually and it was uh, like a, a margin of a disadvantage aerodynamically. It was like uh, on, on 10 kilometers with 40k an hour, it was like uh, 0.2 seconds or something. So, so really, it, it doesn't have a disadvantage, I would say. Simon Geske there. Uh, Rila quiz time. Uh, on the last edition, we asked what was the name of the cycle courier character played by Michael Smiley in the TV series Spaced. And the answer, of course, was Tyres of Faculty. Um, Ian, do we have a winner? We do have a winner. Uh, the winner is Amos Field Reed, a fine name and I'm sure a fine gentleman. Uh, he wins a ruler t shirt. And you're going to want to know what the question is yeah, for the next, this podcast, aren't you? Do we have a cyclocross-themed We ha do, question? indeed, have a suitably cyclocross-themed question. Uh, Tom Pidcock won the cyclocross world champs in Luxembourg last year. Who was second? Who was second in the world championships to uh, the junior world championships to uh, Tom Pidcock in Luxembourg last year? Uh, go to the uh, Rilo website, uh, find the podcast page, and there should be a full description of how to enter there. And the prize is... A ruler T-shirt. A Another, fine ruler T-shirt. A fine ruler T-shirt. Yes. OK, that's it for this podcast. Thanks to Paul Maunder for coming along. Thanks to Ian Cleverly. Speak soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 